You're listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City. Good morning. Good morning. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, Like Jen said, this is week two of Retold, which is where we retell really familiar Bible stories that we maybe heard a million different times in Sunday school as a kid. But we look at them through different eyes. And we look at them with more of an adult perspective and ask, what is it that we're missing out on if we only ever hear these simple kind of fairy tale versions of these stories that we tell to children? And Mira kicked off our series last week and she spoke about Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And if you missed this, that one last week, you have to listen to it on the Forefront podcast because, oh my goodness, it was amazing. Uh, but this week we are jumping forward to the New Testament and looking at the woman at the well or the Samaritan woman, as she's called. And again, this is a pretty well-known Bible story. I certainly remember hearing this story as a child, maybe in Sunday school, But I also feel like I've heard a lot of sermons on this text as an adult as well. And there's even a song about it, uh, which was playing as you came in, Jesus Met the Woman at the Well by Mahalia Jackson. This story comes from John's Gospel. And the writer of John's Gospel chose to put this story in his Gospel account even though he tells us explicitly elsewhere that there were many other things that Jesus said and did that he didn't have the space to include in his gospel. So the writer obviously considered this to be a significant story. And this woman has a really long conversation with Jesus. In fact, one of the commentators that I read points out that this conversation is the longest one-on-one chat that Jesus has with anyone recorded anywhere in scripture. But despite all of that, we are never told this woman's name. She is a nameless Samaritan woman. So she's famous, but she's also anonymous. And in a lot of the versions of this story that I have heard told over the years, whether it's in sermons or Bible studies or even in Sunday school, people make a lot of assumptions about her. So people read into this story a lot of stuff that isn't actually in the Bible text. And I don't know if you noticed in the kids' cartoon version that we watched just now, it started out by saying, the woman had no friends and she was not liked by anyone in the town because of the many mistakes she had made. Now, that's a pretty big spin that they're putting on this story right up front. And it's something that definitely does not say in the Bible text. And actually, a lot of the other kids' versions of this story that I came across this week were very similar. So they said things like, uh, they kept talking about the many mistakes this woman had made in her life, and they said things like, Jesus told her all the sins she had committed. And actually, a lot of the adult sermons that I've heard on this text also talk about this woman as being sinful, So I carried out a Google search to bring up other sermons that had been preached on this passage, and a lot of them certainly held to that view. So many sermons used words like immoral, and they used phrases like sexually immoral, ostracized from her community, a serial adulteress, a poor lost sinful woman, 
a guilty past, an outcast, no angel. These were some of the phrases that we used. And one preacher, and I am not even joking, literally used the words, a skid row prostitute drug abuser to describe this woman. That's pretty harsh. So what is it about the woman in this story that leads so many people to jump to conclusions about her being sinful or immoral? Well, I think it's probably the part that the little video that we just watched randomly left out, which is the part where Jesus says to her, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. Now, I don't know why they left that out of the video. Maybe people think that's too difficult to explain to children, whatever. But the way that I've usually heard this story told, it is about Jesus challenging this woman on an immoral lifestyle. You've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. People assume that she was ostracized from her community, that she had no friends, mainly because she came to the well alone in the heat of the day instead of early in the morning with the other women. And the moral of this story, as I have usually heard it preached, is that it is about the woman's repentance and Jesus' forgiveness and acceptance. I wonder if that interpretation sounds familiar to anybody here too. But if we actually look at the Bible passage in John chapter 4, where this story comes from, in Jesus' conversation with this woman, in fact, nobody mentions sin or repentance or forgiveness in this conversation at all. So what actually happens is this. Jesus asks the woman for a drink, and she replies, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a Samaritan woman? Then they have this whole conversation about living water. And then Jesus says to her, go, call your husband and come back. And she answers him, I have no husband. Jesus says to her, you are right in saying you have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Then the man says, sir, I see you are a prophet. And then they have this whole theological conversation about where is the correct place to worship. And then the woman says to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus says, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. So at this point, she runs back to the village. She calls everyone to come and see this man who told me everything I ever did. And so then the people in the village invite Jesus to stay for a few days and many believe in him. So you can see that in that encounter, in that conversation, there was no mention of sin, of repentance, of forgiveness at all. Now Jesus does have those kinds of conversations with people um, elsewhere, in other encounters, other conversations that are recorded in the Bible. But not here, not in this conversation. But I think Jesus' long conversation with this woman does sound strange to our ears, with all of its coming and going about living water and worshipping on a mountain or in Jerusalem and all this stuff about Jews and Samaritans and having five husbands. So what is going on? Well, I don't think it's surprising that we find it hard to interpret this story given how different our culture is today from anything that we read about here. So instead, maybe we need to try to hear how this story would have sounded 
to the very first readers of John's Gospel, the people that he wrote it for, who were Jewish followers of Jesus living less than 100 years after these events took place. And in order for us to do that, I think that we need to understand four things. And the first one is this. I think we need to understand what the position of women was in that particular culture at that particular time. So it might not be that surprising to us to learn that history shows a very limited role for women, both in pagan and in Jewish societies at the time that this encounter took place. For a start, the education of women was very, very limited. So a woman could not study under a rabbi. And in fact, it's reported that one well-known rabbi even said, let the books of the Torah be burnt rather than given to a woman. If a man gives his daughter knowledge of the law, it is as if he has taught her lechery. That's pretty strong. (laughs) Typically, women could not even be alone in the presence of a man who was not related to them. And marriage was seen primarily as a way of linking two families, often for business purposes, with women as a tool for linking men. And divorce could only be initiated by the man. And that's really important in the story. Let me say that again. Divorce could only be initiated by the man. Because, as one commentator points out, this woman could very easily have been widowed five times. She could have had five husbands that died. That would be tragic, but not impossible. Or... She could have been abandoned and divorced by five different men. And scholars think the most likely scenario is that she was now living with a man who she was dependent on, but who refused to marry her. But either way, as a vulnerable widow or as a repeatedly abandoned wife, she would have very few options, very little control over her own destiny. So far from being immoral, the most likely scenario is that this woman was a victim of tragedy or of abuse. So that was the first thing. Second thing that I think we need to understand to make sense of this story is a little bit more about the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. So I feel like we generally have an understanding that uh, the Jewish people and the Samaritans disliked and avoided each other. But actually, the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans is a little bit more complicated than that. So both groups were descended from a common ancestor, who was Jacob, and they had a shared religious and cultural history up to a certain point. So they believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they fundamentally disagreed about where and how to worship God. And in terms of kind of religious, ethnic, class differences, um, the evidence shows that the Jewish people considered themselves to be the chosen ones, and they saw the Samaritans as the ones that God had rejected. And there's widespread agreement that Jews were forbidden to use the same utensils as Samaritans, and even that some rabbis taught that it was a sin for a Jewish person to touch a utensil that a Samaritan had used. Yet here is Jesus asking this woman for a drink out of her water jug. 
So this explains just why Jesus' disciples are astonished, and some translations say stunned or shocked, when they come back and they see what's going on. And it also explains why the woman herself asks Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a Samaritan woman? So that was number two. Third thing that I think we need to understand is this. What is the cultural significance of a story where a man meets a woman at a well? This is where it gets really interesting. So this is where my inner inner Bible geek gets super excited. (laughs) So there are, in this story, what is known as betrothal scene references, which echo famous Old Testament stories and also other traditional Jewish literature. So bear with me. A typical betrothal narrative goes like this. A man is traveling in a foreign land. He meets an unmarried woman at a well. Somebody draws water. She goes back to the town to announce his arrival. The townspeople show him hospitality. And then there is a betrothal, an engagement party. Sound familiar? So the writer of John has chosen to record this encounter between Jesus and a Samaritan woman in the style of a betrothal narrative. And it's particularly significant when we realize that it takes place at Jacob's well, which is where the Jewish patriarchs met their wives. So this is how Jacob met Rachel in Genesis 29, and it's also how Isaac met Rebekah in Genesis 24 in the Old Testament. So in this story that the writer of John is telling, Jesus is cast as the symbolic bridegroom. And it's even more interesting when you realize that in Jewish symbolism, the number seven signals perfection or completion. So as one commentator points out, as the seventh man coming into this woman's life, Jesus symbolizes completion. And that implies that the thing that he has to offer is everything that she's been waiting for. So there's a lot of agreement that this betrothal narrative reference would have been super obvious to the first people that heard the story. But we can completely miss it if we're not careful. So the first readers of the story would have understood the pattern, the genre. And with Jesus cast as this metaphorical bridegroom, as they listened to the story, they would be waiting for the arrival, the appearance of the metaphorical bride. And the shocking surprise for the Jewish listeners is that when she appears, she's a Samaritan. She represents the bride of Christ in the story, and the bride of Christ is a Samaritan. This might be the very first indication that Jesus is not just the savior of the Jewish people, but of the whole world. So number four, fourth thing that we need to do to help us understand this story better is to understand what happened in the previous chapter of John's Gospel. So in John chapter three, immediately before this story takes place, is the story of Nicodemus. And all the way through the Gospel of John, the writer is doing this thing where he contrasts deliberately two stories against each other. So we're intended to read one in light of the other one, and this is one of those things. By placing these stories next to each other, 
the writer intends us to notice the contrast between the story of Nicodemus and the story of this Samaritan woman. So Nicodemus came to Jesus in the previous chapter and they have this famous conversation about being born again. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, so he is a highly educated theological scholar and he's also an important leader in the Jewish community. So he represents for us the insiders, the elite, the chosen ones. He's a man, we know his name, yet he comes to Jesus in secret in the middle of the night. By contrast, as we've said, the woman at the well is a Samaritan. She is a religious and a political outsider. She's a woman, we do not know her name. As one commentator describes it, her identity is obscured by markers of her exclusion. She's like a stereotype of the most excluded person. Yet she meets Jesus at noon in full daylight. And in Nicodemus' encounter with Jesus, we ultimately know that he doesn't understand what Jesus is saying about being born again because his last recorded words in the conversation are, how can this be? But the Samaritan woman gets it. She immediately engages with Jesus in lively theological debate. She is ready straight away with the most important question, the one that has divided the Jews and the Samaritans for so long. Where is the correct place to worship? And with Jesus' response to her comes her dawning excitement. Could this be the Messiah that we've all been waiting for? And as a result of this understanding, Jesus says to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Did you know that this woman is the very first person to whom Jesus reveals that he's the Messiah? Up to this point, even the disciples don't know. But now for the first time, Jesus reveals his true identity to an unnamed Samaritan woman. So what are we supposed to learn from this woman of Samaria? If she is not a model for us of a repentant sinner, then who is she? Well, consider this. One writer says, in a culture where women were only valued as virgins or mothers, she stands engaged in long theological conversation with Jesus. And in direct contrast to the limits put on women's education by other rabbis, Jesus clearly viewed her as a potential disciple. And another commentator says, Jesus spoke to her of worship in spirit and truth. Not worship from which she was excluded because of her gender, because of her ethnicity, because of geography, or because of conventional morality. But worship including her. Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship God must worship in spirit and truth. And this concept is so exciting to her that she symbolically leaves her water jar just as the fishermen left their nets and just like those first disciples, she goes running back to her people to say, come and see. And in doing this, she becomes the very first evangelist to the Gentiles. A lot of people think that that's the Apostle Apostle Paul, but actually it's this woman. So I think that the writer of John is offering us 
this carefully crafted, detailed story about the Samaritan woman as a model of true discipleship. So like Jen said, I've been a part of Forefront Brooklyn here for coming up on two years now. And I'm going to tell you something that I love about this church. So I love that when I come to church, I don't see a 25-year-old white boy with a guitar leading worship every single week. Now, I'm sorry if you're a 25-year-old white guy who plays guitar, but I hope you know what I mean. (laughs) I love that we see people of different races, different genders, different ages, different nationalities with different musical styles up here on this stage week after week after week. And I've spent my entire life in churches that have some kind of musical worship group or another. But until I came here, I had never seen an all-female worship band. Now, this stuff matters. It matters because when people see a model of discipleship or leadership that looks like them, they start to believe that they could do that too. I spent over 30 years of my life in churches where I had never regularly seen female leaders, pastors, priests, preachers. So a few years ago when I started exploring whether I'm called to become a pastor, a priest myself, I actually found it really difficult to picture being fully myself and operating in any of those roles. It is so important that the young women and the girls in this church get to see Jen up here every week, pastoring, preaching, leading. But this stuff also matters for a different reason. And I think this maybe is even more important. This matters because if we only ever hear from one type of voice, we are missing out on so much that God has for us. Last week before Mira spoke here, she shared on Facebook some of the really practical things that had to happen, like childcare and work rescheduling and other stuff, to make it possible for her as a working mother with really young children to have time to prepare and practice and deliver her first ever sermon. And she wrote this on Facebook. A lot had to happen for someone like me, a woman, a mother, a person of color, an immigrant, and someone who has a lot more questions than she does answers, to be given a platform to speak. How much poorer would our church be if we had not had the chance to hear Mira's powerful prophetic words to us last Sunday? This stuff matters because if we only ever hear one type of voice, we miss out on so much. And if we only ever see one type of person leading and teaching us, we only see a tiny part of the image of God. A few months ago when we were doing the Together in This campaign here, I was really moved by watching the videos every week where different congregants shared what it is that they love about Forefront. And I particularly remember Joyce who spoke about being an introvert and she shared how much she values being part of a church that she can serve in ways that suit her personality. And I also remember Andy who spoke about how much it means to him to 
for the first time, be a part of a church where he can be honest about his sexuality, where he could go to his pastors when a relationship ended and share his sadness without fear of judgment. All of these different videos talked about being seen, of being accepted as fully yourself and fully Christian and about being able to contribute, to work, to have something to offer to this community. Those are liberating feelings, and those are feelings that I can identify with too. The longer that I'm involved in ministry, the more I'm realizing that it's the very things I think disqualify me from serving God are the ones that God most wants to use. And I think that is what is going on in this story of the Samaritan woman. This is not a story about repentance and forgiveness. This is a story of liberation and of discipleship. For the very first time, this woman is seen. And she is seen not for her potential as a wife or a mother, but for her potential as a disciple. She is able to be fully herself. She realizes that she has something to offer, both really practically in terms of providing water to quench Jesus' thirst, but also spiritually and intellectually in theological debate and in discipleship. This story of an unnamed Samaritan woman shows every single one of us what can happen when we actually engage in conversation and questions about our faith. She shows us that faith is about dialogue, it's about change, it's about growth, it's not about having all of the answers. And the woman at the well shows us that in God's upside-down kingdom, where the privileged insiders like Nicodemus go away confused, it is the most unexpected people who have the most to offer, even us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God of liberation. We thank you that you bring down the proud and you raise up the powerless. Thank you that you saw the potential in this unnamed Samaritan woman and thank you that we still have this story today to learn from. And God, we ask that you would help each one of us in our own journey of discipleship this week as we live and work across the city to know that we bear your image in us. And help us to learn to see your image in each person we meet. Amen.